0: This is Daniel Fagell and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Part of the art and science of achieving the ROI of A.I. is being able to find the right workflows, find the right opportunities where A.I. can truly deliver value. This week, we're focusing on how to find the value for natural language processing. Our guest is Pamela Negosanti. She is the head of sector strategy for financial services for Expert A.I. Expert A.I. is a vendor company based in Italy, does work all around the world with their various NLP products. Uh, Pamela speaks to us about financial services use cases, but hypothetically, the lessons we're learning here about where to find those pockets of value for NLP could really be applied almost anywhere. I really like the way that Pamela explains the breakdown of not only how to think about NLP at a conceptual level as a business person, who might not be technical, I'm certainly not technical, but also how she talks about being able to find those pockets of value. So if you want to examine your business and think about where search applications, conversational applications, or other kinds of NLP use cases might find a home, this is certainly an episode that you should get something out of. Pamela is also going to be on our AI in Financial Services podcast. If you're not already subscribed there, check out Apple or SoundCloud and go to the AI in Financial Services podcast if you want more use cases and trends in that sector. That's a show you're going to want to stay plugged into as well. In that episode, on the first of next month, Pamela is going to be breaking down when to build, when to buy, and when to take a hybrid approach with AI products and services. A very, very unique framework of thinking in that episode as well, so I'd encourage you to check that out. You can go to emerge.com, emerj.com. Up in the drop down are all of our podcasts. So under podcasts in the menu, you'll see the AI and Financial Services show. Subscribe there. Pamela's gonna be joining us then, and I really liked that episode as well. But without further ado, let's fly directly into this one. We're gonna be digging into NLP and Financial Services. This is Pamela Negasanti of Expert AI here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Pamela, we're going to be talking about the power of NLP in financial services. There's so much to cover here. And the frame I'd like to start us off with is the idea of language as data. You know, really being able to think about how to unlock NLP involves, I think, thinking about it in the right way. How do you like to frame that?
1: Thank you, Dan. So, uh, it's a very good question, right? So, and, um, if you think about data is overwhelming us and it's growing and growing and statistics are saying that each two years, you're doubling the data we are, we are analyzing, but it's not all about numbers because in our brain, once we think about data, we automatically associate them with numbers or structured data. But yeah. that's not the case. The type of data that are increasing and overwhelming us more and more. They are all about language, right? Think about, let's say, all the social content. Think about the interaction we are having with all our provider. It could be the bank, the insurance. Think about the apps. Think about the email, right? So, yep. and that's kind of they have a commonality. There's language, right? So there's text in them, right? So, and that's the kind of messages behind the tagline that language is data because it's containing insight and and value.
0: Yeah, and it, like you said, it's not always very nicely structured. You know, social media posts are not nicely structured. Even if we got a transcript of this interview, I'm sure there'd be some parts that look pretty good and some parts that are pretty disjointed. And so it's it can also be quite messy. When you think about getting folks to frame language as data, what does that let them do? How does that lens of thinking sort of unlock where use cases might be, where value might be in certain workflows? Where, where does that lead us?
1: The first consideration I would like to share is that Language is data, but contrary to the structured data, it's much more complicated for software and machine to analyze, right? And even for humans, it's much more complicated. If we look at a document together, then you and me, and we see a number written, we all understand it's a number, right? So it's descriptive, right? And there's no doubt. If we look at a word, probably we might have different different yeah, concepts yeah, in our yeah, mind, yeah, different yeah. ideas, right? So meaning that there's embedded knowledge that enables us to really disambiguate or assign a meaning to words, the first point, right? And the second point is, and you mentioned it in your previous comment, right? So depending on the channel we are using, We might use a different flavor, different nuances of language, right? We are talking and it's completely different from written. If we are using Twitter, probably we won't respect any syntax or punctuation or case, right? So, And we will feel more our creativity there. So there's different type of languages. We're using different register, right? And despite this, there's a lot of potential use cases. If I'm thinking about financial services, there's several use cases that are in the in the customer care or interaction with the customer. Think about all the apps or requests for information, email we are sending to banks. In case we need documents, we have to subscribe something, right? Uh, we are asking for information. But there's much more than that. Think about the mortgage. How many documents are processed there, right? And they contain a lot of tax contracts, closes, terms and conditions, right? So, and basically you have to read them, right, to understand the meaning and what's the coverage you have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the context matters. And I guess that's probably one of the great challenges here is in the world of natural language processing and you folks operate in a couple different industries, obviously a lot in financial services, you know, you mentioned clauses there's going to be specific language in clauses that you just don't read when you read a novel or you just don't read when you read a LinkedIn post, you know, it's a totally different thing. You might even not hear it really when people talk on the phone, but it's sort of specific legalese in different ways. I imagine from a, a technology standpoint, There's a lot of work that has to go into building an ontology, building a context for different words in different places. Hey, if it's through this medium, if it's this string or this kind of cluster of terms, this is going to be the meaning that we then kind of distill. Because like you said, we could both look at one word and find different meanings. What does that present in terms of technical challenges for making a solution work in these spaces?
1: So the, the, the kind of metaphor I would like to use is exactly as it happens with humans, right? So having the capability to read doesn't mean you can understand a document, right? So, yeah. so and that's the difference to mean between processing and understanding, right? So if you give, let's say, a mortgage proposal or documents or a contract to to a child who has the capability to read, of course, she can read it, but you know, which is the level of understanding? probably nothing at all or very small. And if you have, let's say, a newbie or a new person that has been hired in a company, of course, has a better understanding, but not so deep as a subject matter expert, for example, right? So, And that's the kind of expertise and journey that each one of us as human has to do. Same happens with technology. First, you have to to have the inventory of all the potential meaning of a word, right? And you have to really create the terminology, you have to understand the domain, right? So first thing to me is what I call the embedded knowledge. And that's, you know, for humans is coming from not only the theory, but also from the experience. And you mentioned it correctly. So that could be reflected into different ontologies, right? So different standard ontologies, because, you know, the way you're representing a concept in terminology is prescriptive, right? And ideally terminology should be used to have just one unique meaning in a specific context, even if we know that that's not always the case, right? Ambiguity is always there. But for sure, there's a first piece to me that is based on making sure that you have a good coverage in terms of concept, right? Second piece is about the capability to understand the context, because words, luckily, are not isolated each other, right? But they're using context. And that's kind of you know, practicing and using technology in real life scenarios where you can really understand and apply also some business logic. Right. If you if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you when you talk about, I guess, the the ground conceptual understanding and then the business logic, some of this we can probably drink in statistically, you know, give me enough of this kind of clause in legal docs, and I can figure out if that kind of clause exists in this new legal doc that I've never read before as a machine, right? As a pure machine learning, just I can statistically shake out a concept if you give it to me enough. Some of it also maybe has to be baked in on some level. Hey, as human beings, we've actually worked on what these terms mean. You know, let's feed this stuff in kind of at the top. So I imagine it's almost like a bottoms up learning from statistics and just rattling around through this this kind of corpus of information and finding those connections. And in other cases, it's putting it in there from the get-go. How do you balance those two? Because it feels like that's really part of the challenge to making ML work, and you guys are having to do a bunch of that with your solutions. What's that look like? So
1: the right answer is it
0: depends, right? Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> but let, let, let me give some, uh, you mentioned it correctly, so it, it's a balance, and really it depends on the use case, right? Yeah. So and, and when it comes to, let's say, specific type of niche areas, right? Of course, you need to have a very depth understanding, but the variety is limited. Despite there's a lot of variety, yep. it's limited, right? So, yep. and the same happened with words, right? You can combine them in different way, but there's a limitation, right? In the numbers of permutation that could be done. And you mentioned a very good example that is the contract order closes, right? One of our solution is enable people to compare documents. It doesn't matter how they look like, Right. So imagine you have a document coming from the competition, right? Like, suppose there's intermediation in between, right? And you want to make sure that you're receiving the best offer or you're analyzing two mortgage offer, for example, right? And you want to spot if there are differences in terms of how things are written in the wording because wording is mattering in this case, right? So, and it's not about the surface or the shallow differences, but it's more about the semantic distance, how we call it. Once we we are talking about contracts, you could have in two different clauses, just one pieces of language out of the entire clause, that is different, right? And if you consider statistically these two clauses are the same, like 98%, right? But this small piece could completely revert the coverage or the exposure of the clause. Think about a negation, or think about an adverb like unconditionally, right? So yeah, that's the tossing yeah, element yeah. that is completely changing the meaning. So it's not how many words or concepts are different, but it's how much those concepts are waiting on the impact of the clause itself, right? And this is kind of typical use case when it comes to contract, for example.
0: Yeah. And clearly, there's so much to be done in just the legal and contract domain here when it comes to thinking of, of languages as data. Thinking through this lens, I know we're going to be spinning into return on investment and thinking about all the different ways that we can drive value with this technology. It really is broad. NLP is incredibly broad. So we're going to get down to that. But you know, thinking about a kind of takeaway for some of the listeners here who are mostly you know business leaders, thinking about, all right, they're looking at their own data. Now they've got some context that we're going to need maybe different approaches, different trained algorithms if we're looking at social data versus call center transcripts versus this kind of legal contract versus maybe this other kind of document. So they, they realize the variety of structures for the algorithm of different kinds of ontologies we might need to use. How should that inform their decisions of maybe which projects to work on? Because it, it almost kind of cracks open the complexity here. We can't just have NLP that starts solving all of our problems. We actually, you know, we, we've got specific domains with different rules and contexts. How should we kind of take that into consideration when it comes to moving forward towards projects practically?
1: Well, it's a very good point. Really, you, you can use this type of technology depending on the need you have in different in different departments and throughout the entire value chain, right? So yep. language is everywhere. That's sure the is. point, right? Yep. So And the question that I, I like to ask back to my customer is, which are your pain points, right? So where do you feel or which is your objective, right? Because you could use this technology not, not only with the objective of saving or reducing the processing time, doing operational efficiency, but there's a lot. In terms of benefit in terms of improving the customer experience you're offering that's retention right or growth think about if you're fast in sending offer to your customers that's translated to into they are signing more right you have much more possibility similarly with market penetration and to me depending on the type of department and use case there's different final purposes and way to to adopt technology that can be aligned with the internal strategy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So clearly, you know, yeah, beginning with the end in mind or sort of knowing and defining the problem, these are things that often I think get skipped over with AI. Really important to double down on. glad that you mentioned this. And I guess this does get down to, yeah, when it comes to what our priorities are, it's also what's going to make a business impact. And business impact can be measured in so many ways. So we're going to head right into this. You know, when we go out and we look in the financial services world of artificial intelligence and interview, you know, 80 companies, Glad to have you guys in that mix as well, by the way. However many years ago it was that we first got introduced to you guys, you know, we still see a lot of the leaders in this space associating AI with a correlated word to efficiency, a correlated word to automation broadly. You know, AI, okay, that's what it means. When clearly the possibilities are much more vast than that. And as you just mentioned, sometimes those random efficiencies in the back end can mean improving the customer's experience and moving things forward for them. So we really do have to think outside of just Where can we reduce costs? It's not a terrible place to start, but if it's the only lens we look through, in my opinion, it's absolutely not right. I'd love to move financial services leaders forward in their thinking here. Uh, Let's talk about a couple different types of return on investment and maybe use cases that go along with them that might open people's minds up a little bit today, Pamela.
1: Yeah. So that, that's a very good point. And let me add a comment. So I think that, you know, the, um, the operational efficiency and the automation piece is the, the place where most of the companies start, not only in the financial industry, because yeah. it's the easiest way where you can start. So you can easily calculate the return on the investment, right? So you have the process in place. It's done with full time equivalent. You want to, to, to save, right? So, and that's enabled you also to reflect and to better understand what you would like to do with AI. So to me, it's kind of acting as a way to learn more and start by gaining some benefit in the short term. So it's the low hanging fruit, right? In other words, but there's much more, and I'm giving you an example. When we talk about retail and banking, right? There's a lot, and there's kind of obsession about keeping customer and retention, right? So, and in doing that, there's a lot of information that are ignored coming into the interaction between the customer and the banks, for example. Think about if you could analyze all the exchanges, transcript, calls, email, comment on social network about your customer, and you can find out some sort of recurring patterns when customers are just changing or closing contracts with you. And that's kind of offering you a perspective to do prevention, right? It's not just analyzing and doing analytics in post-processing, but if you can find out a pattern, let's say after two interaction where the sentiment is very negative or they are talking about a topic that they are complaining about something, then they tend after 30 or 45 days to close. Well, if you could prevent that and make them an offer, or just avoid, right? That's kind of a different perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And retention obviously ties to—it's a kind of cost savings that you almost miss to some degree, right? Because it's like, well, to win that customer back, you have how much do you have to spend? And so we could we could almost think about it as efficiencies, or we can think about it as top line. How much additional top line could we maintain if churn could be reduced by? a point and a half or, or whatever monicum we could, we could reduce it by in different lines of business. I would imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, this is just sort of thinking practically about how this stuff looks in the world. These patterns probably vary customer to customer a good deal. I think someone who's just hearing about AI might say, whoa, if one bank can train a churn algorithm, then some other bank can just plug that in and they can predict churn too. What seems like it's probably the case for me is that The particular product offerings probably differ. The languages that people are operating in, you know, you guys do a lot in Europe and now you're doing much more in the United States as well. You know, there's different languages, that varies. There's different IT systems, there's different uh, norms. Maybe some banks have a lot of people doing text, others have a lot doing calls. So it feels like these really do have to be sometimes built for that environment, that line of business, that language, that, you know, specific entity that's working with those IT systems. Talk a little bit about what it takes to kind of craft you know, a solution that's going to work for, for a particular financial services firm.
1: Very good point. So, and to me, there's, let's say, there there are differences for sure, right? Because language is very subjective. So, it, and, and also the way we, we express opinion through language is very personal, right? But there's commonality. So there's definitely something that is common to different industries, to the same industry in different countries, in different jurisdictions, across different companies, right? So, and you said it, right? There's, let's say, commonalities too in the behavior, in the in the way people are behaving, right? So you could find some common parts for sure. And then there's a piece. And if I have to put a number, because I I, I know that that that's <laughs> where you kind of asking for, I would say that you know between a forty and sixty percent to me is common because that's exactly the way how we express. Ourselves, right? So, and it does matter if we're talking to a bank as a customer or we are talking to an insurance, right? So, there's commonality. Then there's specific terminology. And to me, the 40% indifference that is, let's say, the specialty that's depending on how the company itself, so, how the financial institution is managing the knowledge, right? So how they are labeling their own terminology that is not the same of the customer, right? And that's another very good point. So I would suggest NLP could also translate and and, and make the two words speak the same language because in many cases they do not speak the same language. Right. So yeah. and that's kind of where we are. If you're asking me how much time is it necessary, let's say to go productive with one of the solutions that I was mentioning, right? To me, a reasonable time is between three and six months, right? And this is not this are not, let's say this is not the timing that is necessary. This is not effort. This is elapsed time, right? And it's not typically depending on the technology provider itself, right? But it's the combination of the ecosystem that needs to put in place to go productive, right? Yeah. yeah. And let we say that the majority of the latency too is due also to the organizational impact, right? Certainly. That shouldn't be under-evaluated, and it depends also on the levels of maturity yep. where the company find themselves, right?
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that has to shift sometimes to make these things fall in place. Like you said, not just beyond training the algorithms, there's a lot of other factors. But you know, over time, as more and more organizations get into this kind of tech, I think those barriers are, are starting to... You know, get more and more reasonable, which is great to see out in the ecosystem. As we wrap up here, you know, we were talking about that very and all important idea about return on investment. You brought up a great point about you know efficiencies potentially being a good place to start and measure. But we talked about churn, which could impact you know kind of our top line. If we can detect those patterns of severe dissatisfaction, in customer service, maybe we can raise our customer service scores. You know, we advocate that companies really think about a range of ways that a certain set of projects could impact ROI, like as wide a range as they could, and then think about which ones matter to them and which ones are viable and able to hit. How do you help people think through? I'd love for people to walk away with some of your wisdom today about how to open up your scope of thinking about measuring ROI, how to look at a project and really imagine beyond efficiencies, where else this could drive a difference. What do you like to walk people through to help their imagination open up a bit? There's
1: two kind of ROI to me. So one is direct and the other one is indirect. Not right. all are easily to be measured, right? So not the That's same true. way. I think that, you know, we should use different lenses and different tools to measure the impact, right? But for sure, we have to keep in mind and define the 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 objective and how we will measure things up front. Okay, And that's the exercise, right? So once we start working with a lot of companies, we we tell them, how would you measure? how will you define the success at the end of the of the journey, right? Yes. So and that's also when it comes to proof of concept, right? And that's kind of a complicated question for some of them, right? Because they can say, yeah. okay, I'm gonna measure the accuracy of the algorithm. Good. But which is the threshold? So, what if the algorithm and it's about the business case, not only the accuracy technology, you know, could be perfect, but the business case could be a flop. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 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 Or the other way around, technology can provide you just twenty percent accuracy, but this twenty percent could have a great impact for you, right? So, and I'm not just saying that to justify technology, but just because it's not in isolation, right? Should be real and in a tangible way integrated into the environment so to me it's very important that not only we understand how to evaluate technology but how do we measure success up front so which is that that's not always to be taken for granted
0: oh absolutely not i mean i'll tell you right now i've seen companies that have raised 50 million dollars And they're still just figuring out what are the reliable pins that we can knock down with our bowling ball with each customer? Like, what reliably are the needles we can move? Like, that is not a simple problem to solve. But it's very important, like you said, to if we have that understanding, to get that up front and to really understand that. So hopefully for the people listening in, uh, you know, thinking through that with some real active kind of ardent focus will be uh, a useful exercise in seeing AI through to deployment. And Pamela, I know that's all we had for time for this first interview, but... Thanks so much for being able to join us on the show today. Thank you, Dan. So thanks so much for tuning in on this episode of the AI in Business podcast. And a big thank you to Pamela for being able to join us. If you're interested in applying NLP in your business, be sure to download our free PDF brief called Unlocking the Business Value of Natural Language Processing. You can go to emerj.com nlp1. That's NLP like natural language processing. emerj.com nlp1 and download that free PDF brief where you'll not only have a breakdown of some of the key terminology for NLP in business, but also some of the common use cases and how you could apply them in your own business. That's emerj.com nlp one. Otherwise, that's all for this episode. I look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI and Business Podcast.